0: So this could be the shortest sermon of all time, really. Right? Um, so my title is this, God Does Not Make Mistakes. And I said, sermon finished. <laughs> but um, some of you have come a, a long way, so perhaps I should give you a bit more than that. But really, the entire sum of what I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to us right now, in this moment is simply that. God does not make mistakes.
1: I don't honestly know
0: if we believe that. A lot of stuff goes wrong in the world. What do we make of this? Does God know? Does God care? Is it his fault? Did he just hit play on the universe and then step back to watch how it was all going to unfold? I don't know what view you take of God's sovereignty. You know, God is the author of all creation. Mm -hmm. But does he micromanage it? My choice of what I have for breakfast was that predestined? Did I really have any choice? Did God foreknow that choice? Does he care? Does it even matter? So these are actually quite deep questions, philosophically, as in how we understand life, and metaphysically, as in how we understand everything beyond and before life. And those questions are a bit too big to answer fully on a Sunday morning. But what I like to do is to show you, to show us all, that God does not make mistakes. Whatever your viewpoint might be in relation to the sovereignty of God. In particular, God doesn't make mistakes when it comes to us, both in who we are and in how our lives run. And to to fully grasp this, to appreciate this, we've got to know, we've got to understand a bit first about God's knowledge and his power. So, firstly, God's knowledge. Now, the technical word for God's knowledge is omniscience, which is literally knowing everything. That's infinite knowledge. So whether or not we agree on precisely how this happened, we do believe that God brought this world, the entire universe, into existence. And omniscience, all-knowingness, means that before that, before a single blade of grass appeared, before one molecule began its journey to become part of a planet, part of a person, part of a star, part of a microbe, before anything God knew exactly, in the most minute detail, what would happen from then on until the end of time. Just take that in for a moment. The the mind of God fully comprehends, fully sees and grasps how every life will unfold. He knows every person who's going to be born, who has ever lived, and he knows everything that will happen to them And everything that we'll do, including how many times in one lifetime, you'll blink. Think about that. This is a mind that we just can't grasp. And when the Bible says of God, his thoughts are higher than ours, Isaiah 55, 9, it's not joking. He has perfect knowledge, and so this is why I'd say that nothing that happens in our lives comes as a surprise to God. And take that thought further. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus, who in his divine nature was also omniscient, Jesus, in a very real sense, was paying the price for all sin, all wrongdoing, past, present, and future. So the sins I've not yet committed, The laws I've not yet broken are already forgiven, already dealt with. So omniscience is kind of a big deal, isn't it? So how do we justify this belief that God is all-knowing? Well, as in all cases, we're going to turn to our ultimate written source of truth, which is the Bible. So here are a few example scriptures. Um, 1 John 3.20 For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. 24. Can a, man, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Psalm 147, 4-5 to five. He determines the number of the stars He gives to all of them their names Great is the Lord and abundant in power His understanding is beyond measure And on and on Lots of scriptural evidence That the message of the Bible tells of God's complete, infinite knowledge So that's omniscience God's total knowledge What about God's power? And uh, for God 's power, the technical word is omnipotence, omnipotent, having all power. God can do anything, right now. just in case anybody's really smart, knows a bit of philosophy or theology, this is one of those things that people like to challenge with conundrums. <clears throat> and a particular favorite that I've heard is, "If God is all-powerful, can he make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? <laughs> And the so-called logic goes that if he can make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift, then he's not omnipotent because he can't lift the rock. Or if he can't make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift, then he's equally not all-powerful because he fails to make the, the rock. You see, you see, um, philosophy can kind of tie you in knots. So let's just say that God can do anything that's not logically impossible or inconsistent with his own nature because this clever scenario doesn't fail because of the laws of physics or lack of power on God's part. It fails because the idea in itself contains a contradiction. So, setting aside this kind of clever codswallop, how do we know that God is omnipotent? We turn to the word of God. Matthew 19 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I'm hoping you're listening because this is a real now word. Isaiah forty, twenty eight Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah thirty-two, seventeen. Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Later in that chapter, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Romans four seventeen. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believes, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Ephesians 1, 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great mind, and on and on. There are many more scriptures like this. So God's got all power and all knowledge, and this doesn't sound like the kind of person, the kind of entity that could make mistakes. Not a clumsy, bumbling oaf like me. The only thing that can ever happen in this universe are things that God knows about and that he allows And you might say to me, how can you say this wrong? My life's a mess. Illness, loved ones dying early, disaster in the world. Doesn't really seem like God's got the most straightforward plan in mind, does it? Doesn't look like there's a safe hand on the tiller of the universe. And you know what? Fifteen years ago, I may not have been qualified to give you an answer to that problem. But look at me, look at my life. If you don't know me, I think we all do, but if you're listening on the podcast. My wife and I are parents to two adorable boys. Morgan, who's profoundly disabled, hello Morgan, (laughs) with severe spastic cerebral palsy. He's nearly 13 years old, but functioning roughly at the level of a nine month old. And his identical twin James is on the autistic spectrum with severe learning difficulties. And I say again, these are gorgeous boys, and we love them absolutely and without question. But looking at our life circumstances, it would be easy to say, why did God let this happen? Was he even involved in the process at all? And some of you know the challenging times that we faced and are still facing James was in hospital for the first 13 months of his life, all excepting a few hours here and there. And he came perilously close to death on multiple occasions. And we had that conversation about turning off life support. Didn't that knock our faith? On the most dramatic occasion, we've got James, he's seriously ill in intensive care, and he had this huge air pocket behind his lungs, which weren't functioning well at all. And he was on just about the highest level of ventilation that is available, an oscillating ventilator. So instead of the machine that gives a breath in and out, in and out, the oscillating ventilator just goes... to keep the lungs open, to try and keep the airflow going continuously. And he was on every possible medication that was intended to improve the take-on of oxygen Including one drug that was basically experimental. It didn't even know what it did. So we were at the limits of medical knowledge and beyond. And man said, This is the end. Man said, There's nothing else we can do. He's too ill to travel to any other hospital with other treatments available. We need to think about ceasing his life support. I think we knew this was coming. The doctors walked up to us, and from the looks on their faces, we knew it was going to be grim news. They were trying to be diplomatic and sensitive, and we just said, lay it on us. And after that conversation, we walked out of intensive care and down the long corridor, and we were clinging to each other and speechless, tearful. We got the word out, and people were praying. In their thousands, people who we'd never met, friends of friends of friends, but who'd heard of us, who were following the blog, and who were just caught up in the story that was unfolding. A lot of people watching and praying. And between Sharon and I, we didn't really know what was going to happen. One of us felt like this was the end and we were going to say goodbye. And the other felt that God was going to perform a miracle and James would pull through. And this isn't about who was right and who was wrong. We both knew that God had got this. We both knew, deep down, fundamentally, that God does not make mistakes. Whatever the outcome was going to be, we would see his hand on the situation. So some of you have heard this story, I know. A day or two after this, after that conversation, we we're in James's cubicle in ICU, and the doctors were doing their rounds, and uh, in came the head of intensive care, wonderfully compassionate man called Andrew Selby. And he had this entourage with him. There were students, nurses, some people, I don't even know who they were, and the cubicle was packed with bodies. It was not a big cubicle. There must have been, I don't know, 18 or more. And Mr. Selby did what he normally did. So he disconnected James from the ventilator and switched over to a manual resuscitator. That's one of those things that goes over the whole mouth and then there's this rugby ball-shaped thing that you squeeze to get air into the lungs. And he'd do this every few days, mainly just to feel the stiffness of James's lungs and to see if there'd been any improvement in his condition. So he put that mouthpiece over James's tiny mouth And before he could do a thing, the bag just started deflating and inflating on its own. James was breathing. From virtually the highest level of artificial respiration available, suddenly he could breathe unaided. Andrew Selby looked at us, and we looked back and... Paragraphs of meaning were telegraphed in just that one look. Astonishment. Miracle. James became the first patient at Older Hay Children's Hospital ever to be weaned directly from that oscillating ventilator onto simple nasal prong oxygen. Now, don't get me wrong, this was a miracle, but there was also a long road to recovery after that. Still, they told us that James was going to outgrow his lung capacity in his early childhood. That literal deadline has long since passed, years ago. God does not make mistakes. And what if it had gone the other way, like it does tragically in so many cases? Okay, well, despite the fact that both of our boys miraculously survived in the face of overwhelming odds, I don't think you'd necessarily describe our present circumstances as triumphant. Not in the normal sense of the word. Our lives are extremely complex. You know, for starters, our washing machine runs multiple times a day, almost every day of the week. Sharon manages more than 25 different medicines for Morgan and a few for James, she has to track each one carefully, plus all the other medical supplies, so we don't run out. We have NHS carers in our house five or six days a week. Our lives are constrained. We find it very hard to be hospitable, as hospitable as we'd like to be. Life takes virtually all our energy, just surviving. And as much as we'd love to have more people in our home to share fellowship, just isn't that easy right now. And similarly, it's pretty hard for us to go into other people's houses. Pretty hard for them to extend hospitality to us. There are only a few houses which we can even get Morgan's wheelchair into. And if for any reason he needs changing, there's no house except our own that's got all the lifting and the changing facilities that we need to look after his personal care and you know we could resent this I'd love to be able to travel not Sharon, she's like B.A. Barakas on the (laughs) 18. takes a drugged hamburger to get her onto a plane (laughs) I'd love to be able to take our children on holidays, maybe go abroad the four of us I'd love to be able to take Sharon away for a weekend, just the two of us Nothing fancy, just some simple, clear headspace. It isn't possible right now. And it would be really, really easy to say it's not fair. But God does not make mistakes. We trust Him. We know that no matter how hard these circumstances feel, He's never going to let us down. He never has we studied the book of James recently, haven't we? And in chapter 1 of James, verses 2 to 4, we read this. Count it all joy, all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. My goodness, our faith has been tested. So we believe that nothing, no events in our lives are wasted, provided we submit to God. Probably the most obvious example of this, in the case of my family, was a few years into the boys' lives. Um, We were more or less on an even keel. It happens once every five years or so. Um, We developed a rhythm, a pattern, and we were doing okay. And we met another family. At the time, they had one child. Another was not far behind, and early on, Sharon spotted that this first child looked like there was an issue there, probably epilepsy. Parents didn't know. And when the second child arrived, we noticed there was something much more serious going on. We saw this before the parents did. Just because of our own experiences, we knew the signs that all is not well. And we were then able to be there for that family, to help them in the early stages. As they went through the grief of the diagnosis and they started to ask all the questions that people ask. You know, why is this happening? Who's gonna help us? How will we cope? What happens next? How do we get support? And this family, their lives touch us really just for the briefest of moments. And they're living their own stories now, but, but for that moment, When we were able to give the kind of support that can only be given by those who've walked similar roads, then we understood something of God's purpose in our experiences. We live in a fallen, broken world. It contains excruciating trials. We know of one parent of a special needs child who, apparently unable to deal with the situation, walked in front of a train. So this family who we were able to support briefly in the early years, who knows what might have happened without that support. And this is not to blow our trumpets. By no means that's to acknowledge that God provided help for that family when they needed it. And we see both sides of God's providence here. He used our experience for his glory and he gave help to those who needed it. God does not make mistakes so let's bring this right close to home Freedom Church, Chester, July 2017 before Sharon and I joined this congregation I know you've received prophetic words here about uh, the congregation having a ministry to those with disabilities or particular needs and challenges and I don't know if this is because this is a particularly honest congregation but here we've seen physical disability we've seen Learning difficulties, mental health problems, ADHD, autistic spectrum condition, vision impairment, alcohol and drug dependency, and so on. And that's quite a long list for a relatively small group of people. I'm not saying that we're a mess. I'm saying, (laughs) I'm saying, look at what God is trusting us with. Look at how he's stretching us. We've got all kinds of people coming here. And you know, if the Bible doesn't have answers, if Jesus cannot meet each and every person exactly where they are, well, it's not the gospel we thought it was. But it is. So, in the last 10 minutes or so, I just want to focus in on the gospel and how it applies to special needs. Remembering what I've been saying all through this sermon. God does not make mistakes. So first, and I was going too fast with all the other passages, but you might want to turn to this one. Let's turn to a passage that's particularly spoken to Sharon and me in what we've been through so far. John 9. John 9. This is a passage often entitled, Jesus heals a man born blind. We're going to read up to verse 7, but the whole chapter is really worthwhile looking at later on. So John 9, 1-7. As he passed by... This is Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, when we look at someone like Morgan, our hearts might instinctively turn towards pity. You know, honestly, after Morgan was born, we saw the extent of his disability. I grieved for two years for what had been lost. What I thought had been lost. And I'm not saying it was right for me to grieve for that long. It certainly doesn't look like I was trusting God, does it? It's just the truth. I found it really sad. And like any parents, we had hopes and dreams for our children, and we had to lay them down, not make assumptions about how their lives were going to run. And that threw us on to God, because only He has the answers. So was it our sin or Morgan's that he ended up disabled? Of course not. Did God allow it? Absolutely. That's pretty tough, you know, because Morgan suffers with his condition. He really does. He's in pain most of the time. It's a miracle he's so happy. But we live in a fallen world, which means bad stuff happens. And God has a plan. There's a popular phrase doing the rounds at the moment, uh, in and out of Christian circles, and I suspect it was popularized to some extent by Rob Bell's book of the same name, which I don't necessarily recommend reading. The phrase is, love wins. Now, love is pretty important. It's fundamentally built into the fabric of the universe and into the essence of morality itself. If you ever look at the Ten Commandments, you'll see that they can be split into two sections. The first section is all about loving God, and the second section is all about loving people. So love's important, yes, but there's something even more important than love. And with our selfish, self-indulgent, self-centered human thinking, we find this other principle offensive. But still, the highest principle around which the whole universe revolves is God's glory. Love does not trump God's glory. Now, love in the truest sense of the word is inextricably linked with the character of God, so yes, of course, love does win, But when we use that phrase to the exclusion of every other, we get things out of balance. God's glory will win. And when he's fully glorified by us, by his creation, by his people, then the principle of love will reach its culmination, its highest point. And God is glorified through Morgan. God is glorified through James. If you spend long enough with our boys, I think you'll see that. The thinking of the world is upside down. Many people are horrified or repulsed by disability. And let's be honest, it's hard to adjust to. Sharon and I find ourselves in a world that we didn't even really know existed. But we keep seeing prayers answered. We keep seeing God being glorified. We keep seeing him use these circumstances to help us grow and to touch the lives of other people in ways we could have never anticipated or engineered ourselves. This is for the glory of God. The next time I preach at Freedom Church, God willing, um, I'll be bringing some practical ideas, ways for us as a congregation to respond to God's call in relation to special needs and disability. Now, there's a lot that we can learn together, and in facing this head-on I believe we can bring a great blessing to the world and to all those who journey with us who experience physical and mental challenges for whom living is just that bit harder than for everyone else for now let me just say love them love each other show compassion if you don't feel compassion ask for it I wouldn't describe myself as a particularly empathic or compassionate person, so I've been asking God to change me. For 10-15 years, I'm a slow learner. I think it's working. Don't look at these situations with pity. Look on them as opportunities for God's grace to be revealed in ways you could never imagine. Psalm 147, 2-3. to three. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That's our mission, isn't it? That's the gospel. We're all outcasts in one way or another. How will you respond to this? How will you gather outcasts? How will you heal the brokenhearted? And bind up their wounds. Not in our own strength. Not with our own so-called good ideas. We walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he knows the best response to every situation. So let's deal with this prayerfully. Looking for his direction and guidance. Smothering people ain't going to work. Getting alongside. Learning who they are. Accepting them as they are, not looking to fix them, just looking for God's provision. That's the way of the gospel. We can do this. We can do this. Not because we're great people, but because we're redeemed people. Now, if you feel unequal to the challenge, and honestly you probably should, unless we've been through something like this, we don't really understand As I say, if you don't feel quite able to meet the needs, not quite sure what to say, you're in good company. No book in the world, no talk, certainly not this sermon, is really going to prepare you for this kind of ministry, this kind of service. The only way is God's way. The only strategy that I can think of is to pray for the filling, the empowering of his spirit. If you're willing to be used by God, if you're willing to be used by God, however he chooses, can I ask you to stand with me for a moment and I'm going to pray for us all. This is not me testing you. I'm just going to close my eyes because it's not for me to know. Father, We have seen what you've already trusted us with. And to a certain extent it's scary. We certainly can't fix things. We can't fix people. And it's not your will sometimes for people to be fixed. We just don't understand your ways and your purposes. But we ask, Lord, right now that you will use us. That you'll carry on using us. Not as people who have got good ideas or good strategies or particularly intelligent. None of that, Lord. Just as vessels that you fill with your power, with your spirit. Holy Spirit, we're going to need you to show us the way here. People are far more complex. Situations are far more complex than we can understand or unravel or work out. Our human counselling can't really help here, the only thing, the only person who can help, God, is you. The only power in this universe that is going to bring this healing, that is going to bring salvation, that's going to bring unity, that is going to enable people to feel true love, it's you, God. So as we stand before you now, we're saying, yes, Lord, use us. Please help us to remain humble and please fill us with compassion for all the wonderful people you've placed on this planet with us. Not for our kudos, not so that people can say, oh, Freedom Church, they're doing a great work. Not that. For your glory, Lord. For the name and for the sake of Jesus. Amen.